Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode number 43, Christine Ruva, Bias, Pretrial Publicity, and Deliberation. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Chris Ruba. Chris is Associate Professor and Chair of Psychology at the University of South Florida at Sarasota Manatee. Chris's research interests are in psychology and law, with a special focus on jury decision-making and eyewitness testimony. Our podcast today features Chris's recent article, Keep Your Bias to Yourself, which was co-authored with Christina Gunter and published in the journal Law and Human Behavior. In it, Chris reports on an experiment exploring the interaction between pretrial publicity and jury deliberations. For example, if some jurors are exposed to pretrial publicity, what effect does that have on their interpretation of evidence and ultimately their verdicts? Does it matter if jurors deliberate with each other? And does jury composition matter? In other words, does having non-exposed jurors, pristine jurors, make a difference? And can they have a moderating effect on the bias associated with pretrial publicity, also known as PTP? Chris's study reveals some curious interactions between PTP and jury deliberations. I think you'll find her findings quite interesting. Chris, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you. Let me first say that there's a lot going on in your study because it deals not only with pretrial publicity, but how it interacts with jury deliberations. But let me start off first with the basics. Let's talk about pretrial publicity and its effect on a single jury member without deliberations. Does the publicity have the potential to bias a jury member? And is it enough that a jury member says that he or she is going to keep an open mind during the proceeding? Good questions. And if you look at an individual jury member, and I've done quite a bit of research, and not only myself, but others have too, what we find is that jurors who are exposed to anti-defendant or negative defendant, that's the most common that's been looked at, they are more likely to vote guilty than jurors who have not been exposed to pre-trial publicity. They will view the defendant as being less credible than control group would. They also have a number of other things that we found, which probably goes into the second part of your question when you talk about, is it enough to ask them, can they be unbiased? And jurors may truly try to be unbiased, but unfortunately, once they've been exposed to pretrial publicity, my research has found that it's very difficult for them to do this for several reasons. First is because they're likely to make source memory errors. That is, there's multiple places from which you can get information. And for a trial, it would be, in this case, pretrial publicity or the trial itself. And what my research shows is that Jurors confuse the sources of these two pieces of information, and they believe with high confidence that information that was only presented in the pretrial information was actually presented at trial. And then they go on to use this when making decisions about guilt. 
also there's something called predecisional distortion, which looks at primacy effects. So information that you are exposed to first will have the greatest impact. And so jurors come to trial if they've been exposed to pretrial publicity with a story already in mind. And the story, if they've been exposed to negative defendant pretrial publicity, is that the defendant is guilty. And so what happens at trial, they now take in, they form these schemas or structures, they now take in all the trial information in a manner that's supportive of the prosecution or more supportive of the prosecution than it would have been if they had not been exposed to pretrial publicity. So these are encoding effects. How they take information into memory is set now, encoded prior to judicial instructions, prior to deliberations, or anything else that happens afterwards. Those are just some of the reasons why it's just not enough to say that they will maintain an open mind because it's impossible or very difficult for them to do that because of these cognitive processes that can affect them. Now let me stir the pot even more with deliberation. From a theoretical standpoint, how might deliberation complicate the matters? So before doing your experiments, did you expect deliberation to reduce or aggravate the bias that's created by the pretrial publicity? Well, based on prior social science research, I had expected that it would be harmful and that it would actually increase bias. There's theory that looks at polarization effects that look at how jurors who have been exposed to particular information and come to deliberation believing, in fact, that the defendant is guilty because they've been exposed to pretrial publicity. What happens if the majority of the jurors have been exposed to this type of information when they get into the deliberation room, this bias now increases. And so after deliberation, they're more likely to vote guilty and they have lower credibility decisions or ratings of the defendant than they did prior to deliberation. Again, past research has shown these polarization effects where actually deliberation increases bias rather than reducing bias. It also goes with memory, too. I know some people believe that deliberation or collaboration should improve memory. And although there's some evidence for a slight increase in some studies in what's remembered, most of the research shows that actually collaborative memory can increase bias, can increase memory errors, and can be a way that we transfer misinformation among jurors. Yes, the deliberation process I had expected to actually increase bias and not reduce it. And did you hope to confirm this hypothesis in your experiments, or were there other things that you were uncertain about and hoped to get a little bit more information or more illumination on? I had never examined before a mixed jury. And what I mean by mixed jury is that PTP exposure typically at the jury level would be all jurors are exposed to the same type of pretrial information. And what I wanted to see, and I've been wanting to do this for a long time, but logistically it's very difficult because you just need more conditions and more jurors and more time. And what happens if half of the jurors are exposed to one type of information, for example, negative defendant pretrial publicity, but the other half are exposed to irrelevant information. So really are no PTP control. They're not exposed to pretrial publicity surrounding the trial. Would in that case, there be a reduction in bias? Because now we have these jurors who haven't been exposed to pretrial publicity. They should, you would hope, do some correction during deliberation. 
I wasn't sure this was going to happen, but it was something I wanted to look at to see. We know polarization effects occur when everybody's been exposed to the same thing. This bias gets greater. But what happens when we have this even division between jurors on what they've been exposed to? Will we then see a reduction in bias? Or what will happen maybe is that the jurors who have not been exposed to pre-trial publicity will pick up the bias from those they deliberate with. So we weren't sure what we were going to find. Let's talk about the experiments. Can you briefly summarize, just using a broad brush, how you did your study? How did you study this phenomenon? Okay, so we had three different types of pretrial publicity that we exposed the jurors to. One was negative defendant or anti-defendant pretrial publicity, which has been looked at the most. The next was negative victim, which there hasn't been as much research on, which basically painted the victim in a negative light. And the last was this irrelevant or no PTP control condition, where they were just exposed to news stories about minor crimes that were low in emotionality and had nothing whatsoever to do with the trial that the participants watched. They then watched actual trial footage of a woman who was accused of murdering her husband, her estranged husband, but she was claiming that when she shot her husband, she believed that he was an intruder in the house, they were in a dark basement, and she accidentally shot and killed her husband. First, they were exposed to this pre-trial publicity, and then I put a one-week delay between that and when they viewed the trial footage to make it more ecologically valid, more realistic. After viewing the trial, jurors then provided some of the jurors pre-deliberation verdicts. They then deliberated for approximately 25 minutes, came to a group decision, and then completed a number of post-deliberation measures. One consisted of individual juror verdicts again. They did some memory tests. They looked at the evidence and interpreted, they gave value ratings to the evidence that was presented at trial, whether it supported the prosecution or defense. They also did some credibility ratings. So they rated the credibility of the defendant. I realize this is a big question that's coming up, but what basically did you find out of all these studies with all these jurors and all these conditions? Yeah, that is a big question. I'll try to hit the high points. I mean, we found a lot, but I'll hit the high points. First, and probably importantly, although not the most interesting thing, is that prior to deliberation, we found the typical pretrial publicity effects, because you want to make sure that you have those. And what we found was that jurors who were exposed to anti-defendant or negative defendant pretrial publicity were more likely to vote guilty and had higher guilt ratings, which guilt rating just combines verdicts and a confidence rating. So one indicates the juror was higher highly confident in a not guilty verdict. Seven indicates highly confident in a guilty verdict. So we found that typical effect. We also found that those jurors exposed to negative victim pretrial publicity were the least likely to vote guilty and had the lowest credibility ratings. So now go on to the other effects. So pretrial publicity and looking at those effects first after deliberations, what we found was that pretrial publicity had on the post-deliberation murder verdicts and guilt ratings, their effect was similar to the effect that it had on credibility and evidence interpretation. So after deliberation at the individual level, exposure to the anti-victim pretrial publicity resulted in a pro-defense bias where there was a greater likelihood of jurors voting not guilty. They rated the defendant as higher in credibility, and they had evidence interpretation in favor of the defense. And then for our negative defendant pretrial publicity jurors, 
they demonstrated an anti-defendant bias where there was a greater likelihood of voting guilty. They had lower credibility ratings of the defendant and the evidence interpretation was in favor of the prosecution. And what's interesting about this evidence interpretation is as we expected, it was not influenced by the type of jury or jury deliberations. It was not influenced by jury deliberations. So contrary to the belief that deliberation should reduce bias or even increase this bias, regardless of the type of jury they deliberated on, PTP was the only thing that had an effect on the interpretation of this trial evidence. Now, for the jury type manipulation, we had juries that were pure. I'll start with those first. So the pure juries consisted of jurors who were all exposed to the same type of pre-trial information. So all exposed to negative defendant PTP or all exposed to to negative victim or all exposed to our irrelevant. So we had three juries that were pure. And then we had three types of juries that were mixed, half negative victim, negative defendant, half negative defendant, irrelevant, and then half negative victim, irrelevant. So those were our mixed jury conditions. And at the jury level, what we found was that the mixed defendant, irrelevant juries, they had guilt assessments that resembled those of the pure defendant PTP juries. So what this means is that defendants that sat on juries that only had negative defendant jurors on them, these juries looked like our mixed juries that had negative defendant irrelevant jurors on them. So this demonstrated that both types of juries had this anti-defendant bias. So there was not a reduction in bias for these mixed juries as one might expect, but we did not find. At the jury level, also what was interesting was the effect of the anti-victim PTP for the pure juries. They overwhelmingly, only 14% of those juries voted guilty. So very, very biasing, even after deliberation. So that's quite staggering that the neutral or the unexposed jurors don't cleanse the tainted jurors in many ways, what happens is that the PTP exposed jurors taint the deliberations of the rest of the jury. Once you have those people in the mix, you've actually screwed up the entire dynamics in deliberations. Yes. And our post-deliberation measures of verdict and guilt rating support that. And when we look at these irrelevant PTP jurors that deliberated with those negative defendant PTP jurors after deliberation at an individual level, we find that they look identical to the negative defendant PTP jurors. So once again, showing that that bias had been transferred, again, prior to deliberation, did not look like the negative defendant PTP jurors, but after deliberation, they looked like them if they had deliberated with them. And they were significantly different from the irrelevant PTP jurors that were on those pure juries. So there's multiple things pointing to, hey, this is a bias that's happening because they're deliberating with those negative defendant PTP jurors. What happened on the juries with the mixed anti-victim and anti-defendant? And what happened on those juries? Now, where we found the difference was actually for the anti-victim jurors, not for the anti-defendant jurors. So for the anti-victim jurors, they actually showed less bias after deliberation. And so 
their verdicts, they were more likely to vote guilty if they had sat on a mixed jury, regardless of what the mixed jury was. But they were less likely to vote guilty if they sat on a mixed jury than their counterparts that sat on a pure jury. So again, their bias was a pro-defense bias. So anything that pushes them towards the prosecution would be a reduction in bias. And in fact, this is what we found for those anti-victim jurors. Now I'm going to ask you about policy implications. And I know from talking to other psychologists that you're likely to resist this question a bit. What kinds of conclusions can we draw for the legal system from both this article and some of the other work that you've done, does it suggest that the legal system's obsession over pretrial publicity is well-founded? And what kinds of mechanisms should we consider to try to reduce this problem? Yes, I think the legal system's obsession with pretrial publicity is justified. And again, it's not all cases. You have these high-profile cases where there's a lot of publicity that follows them from the time of arrest throughout. And my research suggests that it doesn't take a lot, but again, we have a, a shorter time span in the experimental world, but it doesn't take a lot to really bias jurors. We only expose jurors to six stories, the six media stories for this particular study, and there was significant bias that we found. The concern is justified. Now, how do you deal with it? Unfortunately, one of the things my research is trying to explore is what are the mechanisms for this biasing effect of pretrial publicity? What is responsible for it? And again, as I stated earlier, one of the things that we have found is this predecisional distortion or these primacy effects where they take in information at the time of encoding the trial information, they take it in in a biased manner. And so things like judicial instruction, voir dire, and jury deliberations are unlikely to have an impact on them, unfortunately, because that encoding mechanism is out of the control of the legal system. So if a juror is tainted, there's not much you can do about how they take in trial information now. Same thing with source confusion. You can tell jurors not to use information, but again, voir dire, jury deliberations, and judicial instructions would make it still, it doesn't improve their memory. They believe with a high level of confidence that this information that they got in the pretrial publicity was actually presented at trial. And so I guess what I'm seeking to do is to understand the mechanisms, because I'm hoping by understanding the mechanisms, it can point out just what a problem pretrial publicity is to a defendant's ability to get a fair trial. And if there's ways that you can reduce the impact of pretrial publicity for a particular defendant, maybe that should be done. Is it maybe not televising and having media in the courtroom for pretrial hearings? And I don't know. But the typical things that the legal system is doing now really can't impact on these processes that my research has found, unfortunately. And so I think first we need to understand what the mechanisms are, and I think we're beginning to understand them, and then try different remedies to see if we can have an impact in this bias, if we can reduce it, if we can push it down. The pre-trial publicity is not going away. And with the explosion of social media, which is something we really have not explored yet when it comes to pre-trial publicity, we're just going to see more and more of it. And it's going to be more and more difficult to control because it will be out of traditional media's hands and into the hands of regular citizens and individuals who might have a stake in the case. I guess for now, 
there's no magic bullet, but attorneys will have to continue to be particularly vigilant about jurors exposed to pretrial publicity. Final question for you. What's next for you? Are there future studies in this area that you're planning? One of the things that I really want to do now that this was the quantitative analyses of these data, we now are looking at the qualitative analyses. And what that will be is content analyzing a subset of these jury deliberations so that we can explore what was going on during deliberations and how bias was transferred. This takes a long time. We've developed a coding manual and coding scheme, and we have a sophisticated piece of software called the Observer that we're using to code all of this. We actually code the videos themselves and we have multiple coders doing it. So it'll take some time, but that is something I'm really excited about going in and looking specifically at the mixed juries and see what was happening during the deliberation process. How did they negotiate the different types of information that these jurors had and how did they discuss trial information? And so that's one of the things that we're looking at. And it's going to take us a while to complete that task. Well, Chris, thanks for taking the time to talk to us about pretrial publicity and how they're affected by deliberations. Great having you on the show. Thank you. Chris's new study on deliberations and pretrial publicity is good news and bad news. The good news is that the legal system and legal actors have, in a sense, been right all along to emphasize the importance of having a jury untouched by pretrial publicity. Individual jurors are indeed biased by PTP. Because of various psychological mechanisms, including primacy and story effects, as well as source attribution errors, jurors are simply unable to keep an open mind. Similarly, Chris's study suggests that jury deliberations don't fix the bias created by pretrial publicity. The tainted jurors end up tainting their colleagues. So in the end, the goal of the legal system should be to find a pristine jury panel, which is exactly what changes of venue, voir dire, and preemptory challenges are meant to do. That's the good news. The bad news is that at least so far, aside from impaneling this elusive, pristine jury, there are no clear countermeasures for addressing the effects of pretrial bias. If you have a high-profile case that saturates conventional media outlets and social media, good luck finding an unbiased jury pool. Fortunately for us, though, we have psychologists like Chris working hard to find debiasing mechanisms. I'll be interested to see what solutions she and her colleagues come up with in the years to come. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producers are Alex Nunn and Margot Wilkinson-Smith, and the production editor is Carson Smith. Additional production assistance is provided by Aaron Parr-Carranza, and the music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir, under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. <laughs>